0: Hi everyone, I'm Ann Ryan, and welcome to Dream House, the real story of my father, Jack Ryan, the father of Barbie. I'm really excited about today's episode with Dr. Lisa F. Wood. We first heard from her in episode seven, but today's episode is a little bit different in that this is her commentary on some of the other episodes. Her insights are really fascinating, and I hope you enjoy them. Hey, Ann, it's Lisa. I've been thinking about you, and, and I just listened to uh, most of the Jerry Oppenheimer podcast, and I, I had a couple things I'd been thinking about, and I stopped. I have a few minutes left just uh, wanting to say a few things about what I heard him saying, but other stuff was coming up into my mind um, I don't know where or why particularly, but, you know, I was thinking about your dad and I was thinking about the house and some of the comments about, um, you know, why didn't he finish it? Well, that would be no fun. And I think um, that came up a couple times, you know, he was there to have fun and you just refer to, you know, the castle as the ultimate toy. And I think uh, it was a playground. It was a, an experimental laboratory. It was an entertainment space. He was an impresario. He wanted to have things that wowed people, that made them uh, get a sense of of his creativity. And, um, and I think that that's a very important part of the motivation. It's never just one thing. But I was thinking about your grandmother because uh, one of the podcasts I heard recently is, um, and I can't remember the guy's name, but you know, he said he never saw your grandmother and I never saw her, or I might've seen her in the background. But I I started thinking about the family history a little bit. um, And that's one of the things I mentioned is I always like to look a couple generations back from where people are, at least grandparents and then great grandparents, just to kind of know what this uh, intergenerational history looks like. And I think about your grandmother as somebody who, came probably not from money. And I don't know if she was Irish or her parents were Irish or where she came from, but most immigrants coming to the US and coming to the East Coast were coming because they couldn't make it where they were. There were famines or you know, there was oppression or there was religious persecution. And so you know, to have a husband who's a builder and uh, probably an engineer in, in some fashion, even if not formally trained, who becomes very well known for building buildings for wealthy people in New York, that you know hanging around with wealthy people and the aspirations of of her uh, progeny and her perfectionism you know um, you know were very important parts of how she was trying to shape the next generation. She wanted her sons to be really successful they went to private school and um, so here 's your dad, and he has dyslexia, and he 's not uh, automatically going to be a golden boy because he probably does things very differently, and as you mentioned several times you know that Jim his older brother tutored him in physics and pretty soon he was teaching the course because he was a naturally gifted uh, physicist and understood uh, the way some of the people I know who are naturally gifted talk about they can just see it they can just see the way things fit together and they operate and they have this uh, gift around um, visual spatial mechanical skills that most of us don't understand because we weren't trained that way but some people just are naturally gifted in that and many other things and he was and so here he is a guy who rises to the top through a completely different route he 's an iconoclast in that way. He breaks the mold and he um, comes out to the to the west coast and he buys this incredible Tudor mansion, which I think for your grandmother would have meant he 's really made it what a what a great thing he 's married your mother, who has roots in the east coast upper class or upper middle class and now he's out in Hollywood and he has this beautiful mansion and so she and her husband your grandfather move out there and what is he doing he's fucking that up he's tearing it down he's building i mean can you imagine tearing i imagine have beautiful stairs i haven't seen the picture of that and he's torn those off and the the front door is up in the middle of the house and he and his brother your uncle are there uh, turning this into what they would have done as kids if they'd had the money, is to create a treehouse and create this magical house of their own, a child's play. You know? And I mentioned you know, the, the child grown up and the toys they want. But also, here's his, his mother who has been really um, demanding and critical and pushing all the time, and he's finally made it, and he's right in front of her, he's tearing it apart. And your grandfather is helping him. In some way, and and her other son, and they're all kind of against her. So that came to me when I was doing the dishes a couple days ago. You know, what what was the dynamic with your grandmother? There was she sort of just stomping around and not very happy, or was she thrilled to be inside the house and didn't care what they were doing to the outside because she was too old and didn't have a social life there? But at any rate, you know, being an iconoclast and breaking the mold, I think, is an important theme for him. The other thing I I thought about, which I think is important and comes through in different places in the podcast, is that an inventor like Jack, and and I haven't finished reading his piece on invention. I hope I can find it in my emails. But um, he's trying to invent something that people want and need. And there's an inherent marketing model in his head. He isn't just a creative guy who wants to create, like an artist, something completely unique that nobody really wants. He talks about this. It needs to be something they need. You have to look at the outcome. And I think he was very interested in marketing, from my experience. He was talking to Daniel Amen, and I, as it happened, Daniel Amen shows up in the Kardashians along with Martha Stewart. And so, you know, they're a bunch of, you know, those guys are crooks, but they're making millions of dollars by getting people to believe that something they've invented is real. And Jack created things that people really wanted, and he didn't have to fake it. These were really successful inventions. And so he was looking for uh, talking to people, but I don't know that he he didn't need people for the ideas. He did need people to understand how people marketed new ideas, and I think he was interested in that. Um, so that thing about he didn't care about marketing, I think he really did, because he wanted to create things people would want and use, and he wanted to make money. There's no question that he wanted to make money to be able to do the things that made him happy, which included you know, deconstructing the mansion, among other things. Um, so there was another thing that, that occurred to me about all of that, and uh, I was thinking about um, just the development of a corporation. So when you're talking to Jerry Oppenheimer about, you know, the CEO that Ruth Handler became out of a, a an organization that wasn't really fully a corporation in that sense, uh, hadn't developed very far, and they, she was one of the first CEOs. That's an interesting point. But my experience with corporations, like I, I did a lot of treatment with people who worked for a major corporation or other major corporations, and major corporations, that are technical in aviation and military, like Boeing, um, that are technical, like REI, um, that have people engineering things. The engineers uh, generally don't own the patents, and I think that is a unique thing about your dad. But I'm not sure it completely covered him on the idea of ownership of a product. So Barbie is not just the features... Of Barbie, It's the idea of how to market Barbie. And my experience with corporations is uh, they don't let people have their own um, patents. And they believe that everything that's created belongs to the company or the corporation. And this is true in government as well. So you as an engineer may have the person above you present your uniquely invented product as though they did it. And that's not unusual. And I've worked with people in social services who work for years to build relationships in the social community, to build, to change communities. And when they finally bring everyone together and it's really happening, the person above them who did nothing comes and and leads the meeting and says, this is my, my baby. This is what I did. They own it. And so I think for me, Ruth Handler, even if she was kind of a, a dishonest uh, driven by money and power person probably believed, as did her husband, that it that Barbie was theirs. Because once they saw what Jack had invented, for them, they were beginning to take ownership in their heads. And in my experience, um, not that they were correct, but that they believed it because they named the dolls after their kids and because they thought up some things that Barbie could do and they marketed her, marketed her in different ways and they had a whole bunch of other people. And so it's like they took the idea that was Jack's and they just watered it down in so many different ways in terms of all the different marketing strategies that they, they said, well, we've done so much here that it is ours. We've done the bigger part of the marketing and the envisioning you know, what Barbie can become. And I think that happens all the time. So I think the thing that's different is your dad had enough power and money and experience as an engineer to know that he had really invented something unique and to go after them, because I think people just don't. They're too disempowered. And so a lot of this is about your dad's willingness to go head-to-head with Ruth and Elliot. And most engineers that I've known um, were afraid they're going to lose their job. And your dad's independent contracting made him able to do that. He wasn't an employee in the same way. They couldn't just fire him. And he could go after them. So that's my interpretation of that. But, you know, I think the character assassination side of this story, like, I mean, who's going to say Martha Stewart is just a crook? Uh, She did something crooked, but she's done a lot of things. And she's taken credit for a lot of things, and we don't really know what part of all of that is her. But... There's an awful lot of evidence that she had something of her own that was valuable or she wouldn't have been able to do all of that. And I think there's no reason to say the handlers did nothing. And there's no reason to say they're just crooks. But there is a reason to say that they took credit for a unique idea that was not theirs, And they took credit for it when they didn't even have to because they just wanted to. And they wanted to because they were part of something that got so big and was so uh, important culturally that they felt they had to take the whole thing to have that part, and they didn't. They didn't have to take the whole thing. They could have credited your dad all the way along the line and still been people who enjoyed a lot of the credit for what they were doing. And I I think people, it's a kind of greediness. I mean, uh, Martha Stewart didn't need to do what she did with the stocks. People do get greedy and feel they need more when they don't. And I think that's just a human failing. And it's not just people who are poor. It can be people who are rich. I think your story is more powerful without vilifying the handlers. And rather can be a correction of a, of a kind of error that does go on a lot that is should be prosecuted and should be addressed at a legal level. And I think you're not going to look like you're just trying to get back at them. You're really just trying to correct the record. What, what did he invent? Somebody who invents as many things as he invented was much more likely to invent Barbie than a couple of people who knew nothing about any of those things. I mean, what is the chance any of us would come up with a sparrow missile? So I think understanding inventors and understanding what they're capable of doing and how significant it is, is is a really important theme. Anyway, I love what you're doing. I'm very interested, as you can tell. And um, I think the family story is an interesting story. And I think a story of what ideas your dad had beyond the things he patented might be important to explore. And I don't know that anybody who's still around knows that or is willing to admit it. Hey Ann, it's Lisa. I listened to the uh, Tim Windham podcast. I thought it was an interesting window into the 1960s and 70s and how uh, women were viewed and the role of men and the idealized man of the time. And I was thinking about, you know, what he had to say about women and how he talked about them. And Tim is, you know, very much Um, of that period in terms of his adult life. And there were a lot of interesting things he had to say about his own interest in women. You know, I'll just say, talking about, he referred to my women and and Jack's women as if, you know, they were dividing up the pie of women. And he was never going to encroach on anyone that your dad was interested in. Because he had his own women that he was interested in, though... It also sounded like some of the women were interested in him, and he had to kind of maybe fend them off or you know be careful about that, which so I thought it was just interesting about how men view women as property and as an accoutrement that is uh, building their status and meeting their sexual and emotional needs, but they 're things you know they're they're objects, not people, and even though he could talk about your dad being really interested in women, and I think he was he liked women. And he liked smart women, and particularly Linda. He didn't mention Annie in that same breath, Gunn, but, in, you know, Linda, Anne, and Annie, and Gunn are very bright, dynamic women, and that's the kind of women. And he included your mother in that, although I didn't get to know your mother. I didn't think she was dynamic in the same way. But he obviously adored her at one time. But it was interesting, just this sort of way of talking about women as these objects, which is very much, you know, of the before the women's movement and really took hold that it was okay to talk that way. And it was uh, the way you looked at things. You know, how much money did you have? What kind of car did you drive? What kind of woman you had on your arm? And I I don't think that's gone today. But I also think that it's very interesting... um, just hearing someone try to voice all of those dynamics of men competing with women. And I thought about James Bond. We haven't talked about James Bond as kind of an ideal male, but obviously the reference to Hugh Hefner too. These are playboys, but they're not frivolous playboys. These are playboys, I think particularly James Bond, who's very clever and drives a fabulous car and can drive fast on winding roads and you know entertains women in a way that's very sophisticated, and I think your dad did his own take on the idea of a technical wizard um and somebody who also has a party house that's kind of like Disneyland and kind of like i I thought the minute I walked into the downstairs entertainment space that it reminded me of something that Hugh Hefner would have with the the mirror ball of the nineteen seventies and the fur on the couches. It's also sort of a Vegas reference. So if you look at Vegas and James Bond and Playboy magazine and all of this, your dad was really a playboy in that sense. Um, And he had a lot of power. He had a lot of power because of his creativity and his brilliance and his charm and his good looks. And he was wearing the suit with the skinny tie, you know, the white shirt and sort of a Bond look. And so I think he was living out many different fantasies. And I think that women would be drawn to that. And so this whole thing about he didn't buy women, you know, he didn't buy them luxurious gifts, nor did James Bond, maybe Hugh Hefner did, I don't know. But the idea that you have to bring a gift when you have all these gifts within yourself, um, the whole thing with the cars, and your dad had a sense of humor about it. I don't think he took it as seriously probably as the the public did, you know, in terms of what kind of man he was because I think he was a scientist and he was an engineer and he was um, affiliated with the military and so he had a lot of different identities. Anyway, I thought this was an interesting story and it almost seems uh, like anybody who really lived at that place in his in their youth um, was captivated and... Um, changed by knowing your dad and living at the castle and being able to be part of what his visions were. Um, The other thing he talked about is your dad not finishing things. I thought he had a very interesting point, which was your dad was the engineer, and he was also the person who came up with ideas, and he wasn't necessarily the person who would actually execute the ideas, and that's why he hired people to try to execute them, but really... Um, what it would have cost him, for example, to really build a castle would have probably been a monumental expense far beyond what he was really interested in, which was having a great place for people to come and hang out. And I think about Vegas uh, and the different kinds of entertainment spaces they've created there, and I've only been there once, but they've created these fantasy spaces where people get to go and do whatever they want to do and nobody's going to tell on them. And I do think that reference is there with your dad's house. It's not a place that's really a castle. It's a fantasy place. And, um, you know, Disneyland was coming up at that time, and I think um, your dad was very much uh, trying to create a place for people to come and let go of whatever identities they had and participate in something that was really a fantasy place with actors and people they would otherwise not get to hang out with. So anyway, I thought it was interesting. I don't, I, I think his, um, his thing about your dad having a lot of women, I mean, I think that's very much what people would say about James Bond is he had a lot of really interesting, attractive women. And of course, many of them got killed off. But I think your dad was more of the kind of person who would stay friends with everyone. And, and he did, I think. Hey Annie, I wanted to leave you a message about some things I've been thinking about your dad and particularly in response to Alan's um, conversation with you about fetishizing objects by having a miniature of them and therefore you can have something you couldn't otherwise have and I think that's an important point about toys but it's also an important point about Class and that people who uh, can't actually be rich fetishize things that make them appear to be rich or make them feel rich, uh, the luxuries, etc. And so I thought about the issues of class, and it certainly has to do with why I was looking at career girls and career women. But let me just say that, you know, if you look at your dad's history, even though his father was very successful in New York and was a builder. He was not upper class, and so he may have achieved upper middle class. But there's a very big difference between being upper class and being upper middle class, and it um, it's something that I experienced a lot of with my family around being upwardly mobile and being Jewish, and living in Hancock Park. And so I'll just say a few things. It's not gonna. It's not totally linear, but I think it'll make sense to you. Um, When I grew up as a a young girl in Hancock Park, as a young Jewish girl in Hancock Park, it was highly anti-Semitic. And so why did my father really want to live there? There's a long story about how he knew people and doctors, a famous doctor who lived in Hancock Park. And there were several doctors on our street. And so this was upward mobility, but these were Jewish doctors and it was also the act of assimilation and infiltrating areas that had been anti-Semitic. So that's a much more complicated thing, but in terms of what their vision was for me, it was not that I would be a career girl. A career girl, like a shop girl in England, a career girl is someone who doesn't have prospects of marriage into wealth, or certainly not enough prospects to make it possible to imagine you don't even need to learn anything that would be of practical significance. So my parents talked about, you know, people who should learn to type, women should learn to type so she have they have something to fall back upon, but they never really envisioned that for me. For me, their vision was that I would be interesting and bright and be married to a Jewish doctor, maybe a Jewish doctor who had a lot of cultural interests and was sophisticated, or I would bring that kind of sophistication to the marriage, like my mother tried to do, even though she wasn't sophisticated. My dad was working all the time, and she tried very, very hard to grab some of that sophistication. So when I was thinking about all this Uh, imagery of Barbie and the things that um, Susan, both Susans talked about in terms of your dad wanting them to look sexy uh, on the job, I I decided in my own mind from looking around and thinking about it that it wasn't just being sexy, but it was being the ultimate uh, Girl Friday who is not only sexy, but is really bright and also has this possibility of independent success on her own. And um, I think your dad was into that. He wanted women who were, who were talented. And I think he wanted you to be talented. I don't know how much he mentored you in that, but I doubt that they were looking for you to become somebody's secretary. I mean, maybe he thought you would go on and be a filmmaker or go on and be somebody creative um, and successful in your own right. But if you look at, you know, the film industry, many of the people who came up in the film industry came from poor backgrounds. They were just really talented and they weren't accepted into this, you know, the wealthy waspy elite of Pasadena and uh, Hollywood, maybe or parts of Hollywood. But Hollywood was a new thing. It's really this reference back to the East Coast all the time and Pasadena had that. So I I don't know where this all leads, but your dad your dad married your mom um they were a boston family they had a place on the cape i don't know their history but he was not he came from talent and hard work and so i think you know that wanting everybody to look very professional was part of his rise up as a creative brilliant inventor uh that he wanted to rub shoulders with people who were highly creative not necessarily people who were classy. And so, you know, his was a was progressive in a lot of ways, his model. And it wasn't just that women would be sexy. It was the ultimate uh, woman in the workplace is someone who's both. And those magazines just really speak to it. You can't be both. You know, if you sleep with the boss, you are no longer a talented professional. You're kind of a whore that he can discard. And there's all this shaming in that magazine all the time. So anyway... Um, I do think talking about class with regards to your dad, his father's upward mobility, uh, his... You talk about him rubbing shoulders with the wealthy elite in New York, but I don't know that he was included as somebody who was really upper class, or he was, like my dad, somebody people wanted to know because he served an important function for them, but they didn't necessarily see him as an equal. And so I think your dad... That's just a piece I wanted to add. I started reading the uh, piece on invention and I'm really interested and I want to sit down. I'm doing a bunch of things right now. But, you know, I did talk, your dad really did try to teach about creativity and innovation. And this issue of enthusiasm is very important in that first part because that's how I experienced him. And he was very enthusiastic and I was very enthusiastic. And so just being somebody like that is... uh, you know we had that common element and i think you're that way and but not everybody is and so you know so that's just sort of an interesting thing of why he picked uh the people he picked i think because they were really enthusiastic about new ideas And they weren't people who got hung up on the mechanics or the technicalities to the point where they were no longer excited about it. So he had people who were really excited, just like graduate students are with their mentors. They're excited about everything they're hearing, and that motivates people, and that's why people want to have them around. So that's my spiel. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please like, share, and subscribe. We have lots more exciting episodes coming up and you aren't going to want to miss a single one.